All right, it's going to be Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. For a sermon I've entitled, Signs and Wonders. Why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, at the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood up, right, and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And every year, dozens of conferences are put on for pastors, many of which deal with the issue of church growth. One such event is scheduled for this June. It's being sponsored by the Global Awaken Network, and it's entitled Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth. Now, in the promotional video, Dr. Randy Clark tells how his ministry was transformed years ago when he went to a conference by, with a uh, similar title uh, where he heard John Wimber speak. Now, John Wimber started the Vineyard Church back in 1975, which over the years has become a network of 2,400 charismatic churches uh, located in over 95 countries. Now, reading about the dramatic growth in the early church, and comparing to the results we see in evangelism today, John Wimber began to wonder why. I mean, why is it you read through the book of Acts and you find words that say, and the Lord added to their number daily, and yet in an average church, you find just a few people get saved every year. He thought the answer was simple and it was clear. In the modern church, he said, we practice what's called program evangelism. We hold crusades, we hand out tracts, we do Wednesday night outreach programs. Now, those things are all fine, but what's missing is power, the demonstrated power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, look through the book of Acts, and what do you find? The disciples perform miracles, signs, and wonders, which grab the attention of the people, which leads to their conversion. After Peter preached, or after uh, um, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues, it provided an opportunity for Peter to preach, and we're told that 3,000 were converted. And then in our story again today, it's after the healing of the lame man, that he gets an opportunity to preach the gospel, and many people come to faith. And even though they end up getting arrested, we read in 4, uh, four it says this, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be 5,000. So Wember reasoned, if we want people to hear the message of Christ, they need to see the power of the Spirit, demonstrated through the working of miracles. If you want to grow a church, then signs and wonders are the way to go. What do you think? Is he right? Is the key to the growth of the church signs and wonders? Now, I think Wimber was correct on some things and wrong on others. It's certainly true that God performed through the apostles many miraculous signs. And we're told in Acts 5 to, uh, 12 that at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And it's also the case that 
it was these occurrence of miracles that led to those preaching opportunities and the conversion of many people. But here's the problem. Wimber believed that miraculous powers demonstrated by the apostles in the book of Acts were to be normative and to extend to every church age. But think about it. When you read through the Bible, do you find miracles happening on a regular basis? No, they're quite rare, unusual, unexpected. That's what makes them amazing. And are they spread out evenly over biblical history? No. The first set of miracles you find is under Moses. Remember, he turns his staff into a serpent, strikes the waters of the Nile, they turn to blood. After that, you find a few miracles in the time of Joshua, the collapsing of the wall in Jericho, the sun standing still when they're in battle. But when did the next batch of miracles show up in the Bible after that? It's hundreds and hundreds of years later in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Now past that, there's a few miracles in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego preserved in the fiery furnace. Daniel kept safe in the lion's den. But not many over that next 700 years until you come to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And the New Testament itself may actually hint at the idea that the power of working miracles was coming to an end at the end of the apostolic age. Paul, in his last letter written to Timothy, spoke about Erasmus, who remained in Corinth. But listen to this. But Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. If Paul still had the power to do miracles, why didn't he heal him before he left? Well, no doubt God still can perform miracles, and we know that at times he does bring about miracles and miraculous healings. But the claims of the modern-day faith healers are not substantiated by independent uh, verification. But the healing of this lame man was no parlor trick, no uh, trick done by smoke and mirrors. Rather, it was a genuine healing, which Peter used as a segue in the proclamation of the gospel to the crowds. So now next week, we're going to look at Peter's second sermon uh, directed to those crowds who witnessed that miraculous healing. But this week, we want to focus on the miracle itself. So why don't we pray and then get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to understand And this was a spectacular event but it led to even a more spectacular event, the conversion of many people. So bless us now as we look at this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 3 and 4, it forms a unit. In it, we see the healing of the blind man, or the, um, the uh, lame man, beginning in the chapter 3. And then uh, it provides an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel, which he does. But that leads to their arrest and being thrown into jail. Uh, what the Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, wants to show us again and again is these two parallel realities. The gospel continues to spread despite the fact that there's constant persecution and opposition to the church. Now, folks, I have to tell you, that's not just the way it is in the history of the book of, New, uh, of, of Acts. That's been the history of the entire church. And it continues to this day. But Jesus told us, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, how can we outline this story? I think uh, we could do it this way. There's five points here. First of all, you see the setting and that's in verse 1 the setting. Secondly, we're introduced to the beggar. That's in verse 2. Third, we find the encounter. That's verses 3 to 6. That is followed by the healing. That's 7 to 8. And finally, the reaction, meaning the reaction of the crowds, and that's 9 to 10. The setting. It's the right time. It's the right place. It's the right time to punch your face. (laughs) That's what the kids on my playground said when we were little. Uh, the boys to each other. And they did it always right before they did punch you in the face. Well, they said, uh, 
here we have the time and the place and the setting for this miracle. And you find out it really was the right time and the right place. Look what it says in verse 1 again. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple on the ninth, at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, this temple, of course, was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. First temple was built by Solomon. Uh, it was later destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It was rebuilt 70 years later by the exiles who came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor, and also Joshua the high priest. Herod the Great expanded the temple. He started his project in 20 B.C. and it was actually still going on when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Now you might recall that conversation Jesus had with that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. At one point in the conversation, Jesus mentioned her past sexual history and the fact that she had been married five times and the guy she was living with now wasn't even actually her husband. She got really uncomfortable with that, so she decided to shift the conversation to something more general. And she said this, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people in Jerusalem. Is that the, uh, that's a, they say that that's the place where they ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming and now is, where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, with the inauguration of the new covenant and the establishment of the Christian church, the temple would become obsolete, unnecessary. All the sacrifices performed in the temple looked forwarded to and um, foreshadowed Christ's death on the cross as the true sacrifice for sin. Some four decades later, God would destroy the temple through the Romans. And, uh, but at this point, we're in a transition period. And John and Peter, as good Jews, maintained Jewish practices. So they were going up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour. Now, Bible scholars tell us that there were two sacrifices that were made daily. One in the morning at nine o'clock and the one in the evening at uh, three o'clock. So Jews start their time at 6 o'clock in the morning is the first hour, so the ninth hour would bring it to 3 o'clock. So that this miraculous healing would occur in the courtyard of the building used for the worship of God was appropriate because after it occurs, this man goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Well, that brings us to our second point, though, the beggar himself. Have you ever been approached by a beggar? If you drive down in Minneapolis, you'll see him standing on the on-ramps to the highways. They'll be holding a, a brown cardboard saw, sign and it'll always be written in black ink, and it reads, lost job, homeless, anything will help. Now, they're usually standing next to a, uh, a restaurant and a gas station, both of which have signs that say, help wanted, please apply. As a pastor, I have to tell you, I get regular phone calls from people asking for help. Does, uh, does your church give out gas cards? My boyfriend and I, we need to get back to the cities, and we have no money for gas. Or this one. The ignition of our car went out and we need $300 to get it fixed. One young woman has called me, I think, four or five times over this last year or so. Sometimes she uses the same story, other times she comes up with a new one. I read an article in the Daily Mail about a pregnant woman in San Diego who was begging for money. I mean, talk about a desperate situation. You're pregnant? You need money? A lot of people are giving it to her. Oh, thank you, kind sir. She was out on the street from the morning until the evening until her boyfriend picked her up in his Mercedes-Benz car. Somebody went and uh, recorded the license plate, checked on it, found out that she and her boyfriend live in a $2,500 a month condo. Evidently, she did pretty well as a beggar for herself. 
By the way, do you suppose she reports that money as income on her tax forms? Probably not. If you go to India, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of beggars. One article I read warned tourists against giving money to them and says that a lot of those children are not the children of the women who are begging. They're actually hired by them. And some of those kids were kidnapped and forced to beg. The money doesn't go to them anyways. It goes to those who abducted them. Now, Jesus did tell us, he said, give to those who ask you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. Matthew 5, 42. And James asked, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothing or food, their daily food. And if one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be fed, but you give nothing for their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith without works, when it's not accomplished by actions, is dead. Now, Christians have a responsibility to help others, especially those who are in desperate need. We're supposed to do what we can to help. But we don't have a responsibility to subsidize those who are lazy and refuse to work. We don't have to give them gas money to put it in their Mercedes-Benz. Paul laid down a, lie, a law in Thessalonica. He said this, If anyone refuses to work, also let them not eat. There's to be no loaf for the loafers. Well, this man wasn't loafing, though. Because he was disabled and it was through no fault of his own. Look what it says in verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. Are you familiar with the organization, the March of Dimes? Do you know who started that? It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because he had polio as a kid. Well, the March of Dimes was set up to help kids who were stricken with polio, but after Jonas Salk came up with a vaccine for polio, they had to shift the focus, and now the focus is to prevent birth defects. Well, this man had a birth defect. He couldn't use his legs, and if you can't use your legs, you can't work. And so his only option was to beg. And where better to beg for money than outside of a religious site, the temple, from those who are coming in? That brings us to our third point, though, the encounter. Look what it says in verses 3 to 4, or 3 to 6. It says, when he saw Peter and John going into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. You know, Suzanne and I, when we were heading down to Florida yeah, a month ago or so, we were in our area of the gate waiting to enter into the plane. And there was a guy who was playing an instrument there that I'd never seen before. Found out later on it's called a tar, a Persian tar, not guitar, but tar. And he's playing this instrument. It was, it was really good. We listened to him for about a half hour, and then he switched over to guitar, and that was even more impressive. And uh, my, my grandson went up and put a couple bucks in his, in his guitar case that was open. I thought it was well worth that. Now, he wasn't begging. He was performing. This guy was begging. It's not likely he had a guitar case open. Probably didn't even have a tin can. Most likely had a jar or some kind of a basket. But one way or another, he was hoping to get something from him. It says, well, but when Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him, he said, look at us. By the way, what, what does Leslie always say to kids? One, two, three, all eyes on me. Peter saying, one, two, three, fix your eyes on me. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something. What's he thinking? Well, maybe these guys are generous. They'll give me a couple shekels or two. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. That's interesting. <laughs> One of the commentaries I read Tony Morita, he, he said every time he reads that story, there's always another story that was told to him by a former pastor that comes to mind. This pastor was pastoring in a church that was near a college campus area. 
And so they had a lot of college kids. He said when the college kids were back for, uh, in school, he said the offering really went up about 20 bucks a week. That was it. He said but on one occasion when they gathered the offering, they're, they're collect, they brought it back to collect it, and someone had put an Egg McMuffin in there. And they had a note on the Egg McMuffin that said, Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. Well, they ate it, and I guess that was good. Now, Thomas Aquinas one time was meeting with the Pope in the Vatican years ago. And the Pope was showing him all the treasures of the Vatican. And he said to Thomas, he said, you know, Thomas, no longer can the church say silver and gold have we none. And Thomas said, yeah, neither can they say rise up and walk. You can be worldly rich and spiritually poor. Well, that brings us to our next point, though, the healing. Here's where Dr. Luke finds his special interest when he writes this. And seizing, verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately to his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood up, right, and began to walk and he entered the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Have you seen that movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Thank you. <laughs> you remember the scene where Charlie, because what it is, is whoever gets the Wonka bar with a gold foil, there's seven of them out there, and whoever gets it gets to tour the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. And Charlie manages to, to get one of these. But you're allowed to bring one person. Oh, he wants to bring Grandpa Joe more than anyone. But Grandpa Joe's in his bed. He's lame. He can't walk, and he's at the end of his life. He brings it in, and he says, Grandpa, look what I got. Look what I won. And Grandpa's eyes get big. They get wide. And he yells, yippee! And he gets out of the bed and he dances an Irish jig. Who would have thought? Now, I don't know how you imagine this in your mind. The layman's lifted up and in amazement to himself, he doesn't collapse back down. Instead, he stands, perhaps wobbly, at first then steady. And then he does what almost everybody learns to do in their first year. And he's never done though he's 40. He takes his first steps. He put one step in front of another and soon you'll be walking across the floor. Put one step in front of the other, and soon you'll be walking out the door. But he wasn't just walking. He was walking and leaping, and most importantly, praising God. And think about it. That's probably the first time he had ever entered the temple in his entire lifetime. And I bet he was saying to himself, I think I feel a song coming on. Shackled by a heavy burden, Neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that flooded my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Since I've met my blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, oh, I'll never cease to praise him. I'll shout, while eternity rolls. Micah 4, 2 says this, But as for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise on you with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. And the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
I mean, that's beggar at the throne of grace. Receive grace upon grace. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, beyond all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That brings us to our last point, the reaction. Now Jesus told his followers, he said, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Well, here Peter's good works, the healing of this lame man, was shining brightly, and the reflection of God's glory coming from the smiling face of this now healed beggar was having its attended results. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Who's this guy jumping and twirling and dancing the jig? That looks like that beggar. The guy who used to sit by the beautiful gate. No, it can't be him. That guy can't walk, let alone jump. It's got to be his identical twin or a doppelganger. No, it's him. What happened? How did that happen? As Jesse Lee Peterson would say, amazing. And as Vecini would say, inconceivable. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at all that had happened to him. By the way, isn't that exactly the response we're hoping for when people see the transforming power of God in the lives of others? Wasn't that how the early Jewish followers responded when they realized and understood that God was going to now save the Gentiles? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message, meaning Gentiles. And all the circumcised believers, meaning the Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them also speak in tongues and exalting God. Or how about when Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor of the church, the message went around and came back that he'd been converted on the road to Damascus after an encounter with the living Christ. Paul, recounting that time, said, Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of those who were in Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept saying, the one who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he was trying to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Notice in all of these cases, when the power of God is demonstrated, the response is people are glorifying God. That's what every Christian wants to hear, that people are glorifying God because of us. I mean, isn't that what you want to hear? Isn't that where Jesus found his deepest satisfaction in knowing that through his sinless life, death and resurrection, his father would be glorified? And was it not also for his own joy? Doesn't it say in Hebrews 12 too that he were to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, meaning his own joy, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you want to increase your joy? Live for the glory of God. Jesus said, those who serve me, my father, will honor. Those who experience the grace and mercy of God want to sing his praises and tell others so that they can experience it as well. The beggar was singing God's praises. In the next section, Peter tells the crowds how they also can experience this grace of God. Now, I started by talking about John Wember and what he called power evangelism with its purported signs and wonders. You know, for a person who believed that God has empowered him to heal others, it's interesting how many health problems he himself suffered from. He had a couple of heart attacks, 
and later ended up with cancer. One occasion he fell and he hit his head and caused massive brain hemorrhage from which he later died, November 17th, 1997. According to the article in Wikipedia on him, they end with these words. Wimber's health problems had challenged his theology and experience. After teaching on healing and praying for the sick and seeing people healed, he openly admitted, not only have I suffered physically with health problems, but I've spent a great deal of time struggling with depression during my battle with cancer. He also commented this, sometimes our experiences don't fit our understanding of what the Bible teaches. On the one hand, we know that God is sovereign and that he sent Jesus to commission us to pray and heal the sick. On the other hand, we know from experience that healing does not always occur. Why would God command us to heal the sick and then choose not to back up our actions, so to speak, by not healing the person for whom we pray? This can be downright discouraging. As I learned years ago in my own congregation when I first began to teach on healing. It was nine months before we saw the first person healed. The temptation was to withdraw from the practice that Christ commanded us or on the other extreme to drum up false bravado to convince God to do what we thought he ought to do. Listen carefully. God can and at times certainly does do miraculous healing. But that's not what we grow the church by. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel itself, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We will see the power of God at work when we preach and teach the gospel and let it have its effect in the people's lives. And next week, we'll see the effect that it had in the lives of these people who saw this miracle. So for now, why don't we pray and ask God's help? Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Um, we in this church know of at least one case where there was a miraculous healing that was absolutely verifiable and amazing. And it did bring glory to you. But Father and God, this is not the norm. Uh, it's the gospel itself being preached that convicts people of their sins and causes them to come to faith. And even in these cases with the miracles, they weren't saved through the miracles. That only set up the miracle. So Father and God, we pray that as we get opportunities to preach the gospel and to uh, witness to people, that you'd give us courage to do so and that we would see results from it. Lord, people being saved, people coming to know your son and glorifying him because that brings our joy to a fullness, Lord, and it brings honor uh, to your son for what he's done. So bless us now to that end, we ask in Jesus' name.